Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with mo uh, modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, the Chinese are backing the Argentinian claims to the Falklands with hot anti-colonialist rhetoric. With America still neutral, is Britain heading towards a Suez 2.0 moment? And, perhaps more importantly, have we reached a sinister new milestone in the multipolar era, where old colonial grievances become brand new proxy wars? Back in Britain, the Bank of England are looking to rebottle the inflation genie with another big rate hike. Are they being too aggressive? When it comes to destroying the British economy, do they just need to finish the job that the government started? Finally, for decades, the Germans have lived by the Schwarzenegger, the so-called black zero of a balanced budget. Meanwhile, the likes of Italy lived by the red billion. With interest rates spiking and a new kind of eurozone crisis brewing, are we about to see the continuation of what is effectively a culture war across the beer-wine line? But first... Folk around, find out. Well, 40 years after Britain and Argentina fought a war over the Falkland Islands, uh, or Las Malvinas, as the Argentinians uh, still refer to them, the issue has reared its head again, as it intermittently does. However, this time, I think it's a little bit more important, and it's something that people should really pay attention to. Last week, there was a meeting of the UN Special Committee on Decolonization, which adopted a resolution calling on Britain and Argentina to resume negotiations over the islands. Now, this point was underscored by China's deputy permanent representative to the UN. So basically, China's deputy ambassador to the United Nations, who called on all countries to abandon colonial thinking. Uh, he said that it had serious implications for the international order. Now, this is a point on all, you know, aimed at all countries, but especially toward Britain. And he said, to quote, the issue of the Malvinas Islands is a historical legacy of colonialism. Although the colonial era has passed, hegemonism and power politics that are in line with colonial thinking still exist today. Now, basically what this is, is, is China, I guess, swinging a little bit of its diplomatic power behind Argentina, which still claims sovereignty over the islands. It's a big issue for Britain because uh, Britain, of course, claims sovereignty and, and has a pretty decent uh, claim based on the right of peoples to self-determine, the, the, uh, the, the ability to uh, determine who governs them. And that the islanders clearly want to remain as part of Britain, a, color, a crown possession. Uh, however, the uh, this is still an issue with Argentina. And... I personally think, and I think going with our multipolar theme, that as great power competition heats up, especially between the United States and China, places like the Falkland Islands are going to become live issues again, because there's going to be a great deal of competition in South America between the United States and China. And of course, countries there will be able to use that competition for their own aims. In Argentina's case, a key part of that might be the Falkland Islands. So I think that this is a very important issue. And of course, any negotiation from Britain's perspective would be a loss because even if the negotiation was mostly in Britain's favor, Britain has what it wants now, which is you know sovereignty over the Falkland Islands. And the Falkland Islanders have what they want, which is British rule over the Falkland Islands. So any negotiation from that point would obviously be a deterioration from the position. So I think this is something that Britain needs to be aware of, and I think it's something that listeners need to be aware of as well. Yeah, I mean, we usually go into kind of, you know, the economic details and so on um, about uh, about these issues. Um, with the Falklands, it's uh, almost a little bit unusual doing it. This is a very, very small 
place. I mean, that really can't be stressed enough. The total um, exports, for example, the latest estimate they have up is actually 2015. So obviously they don't even collect very regular statistics. Was about two hundred and sixty million dollars. That would be a probably small-sized hedge fund. Would be uh, about the equivalent of that. So we're we're talking about an extremely small economy. That said, it is kind of interesting that their exports are ninety um, percent uh, are mollusks. Sorry, mollusks <laughs> hard hard to pronounce. Those are uh, I think shellfish from the sea, and it pretty much all goes to uh, to Spain. So the tapas and so on that you have in Spain are are highly likely, apparently, to be mollusks from the uh, Falkland Islands. And then all their imports come from Britain, because my understanding is that the Falklands is effectively like Britain on an island in terms of like the pubs are the same. People, you know, drink the same beers and they eat probably a more seafood rich diet. But, you know, British life is somewhat replicated on the island. So, um, again, the trade, not that meaningful. Will will Spain be extremely um, uh, worried about their tapas menu if there was any trouble around the Falklands? I mean, conceivably, but I don't think it will be a, a geopolitical issue. Beyond that, another thing that stands out about the Falkland Islands is that they have the second largest gun ownership in the world. So the largest is obviously the United States um, with 120 firearms per 100 people. So 120 per 100 people, it's a lot of guns. Um, Falklands is more modest uh, in second place with 62 firearms per 100 people. But if you assume that those are relatively spread out, it looks like maybe every family has a gun or the vast majority have guns. They seem to have extremely lax gun laws. I mean, they seem pretty much identical to the American gun laws, i.e., you can own anything under a fully automatic weapon. I don't know, maybe you can speak to this in a moment when we talk about the um, military thing, but I don't know if that's some sort of a militia arrangement. The real question, I I think, and and we'll probably turn it over to you, is whether the Falklands uh, can be defended. I, I looked into it very briefly, and it did appear, at least from the point of view of fixed defenses, if you look them up online, you know there are bunkers there. There are there are fixed, um, I guess, anti-shipping guns. They look pretty rusty. I mean, on its face, if you look at the photos on the island, it looks like a war took their place there forty years ago, which of course it did. Maybe you can give us a better sense of of the military presence there. The first thing to say is I don't think this is an economic matter. There's for a long time there's been talk that there might be oil in the South Atlantic, that there might be mil- mineral riches that could be mined from the seabed, whether it be hydrocarbons or other kind of minerals. But this has been talked about for as long as I can remember, and nothing's ever been done about it, which suggests to me that there's nothing that's necessarily uh, super economic to dig out from the undersea uh, area. And in addition to that, you know, Britain is having a debate at the moment whether to take more oil and gas out of the North Sea. So, you know, the idea that they might want to do it from the South Atlantic, uh, you know, I don't know, 10, 12,000 miles away, uh, stretches credulity. It's, it, it's really not an economic matter. It, it, it's a matter of principle, a matter of ideology. And because of that, it, it, it's more difficult to deal with. If it was just a matter of economics, then perhaps Britain and Argentina could come to some sort of agreement on the matter if it was a little kind of mini qatar in the south atlantic that or mini kuwait in the south atlantic that was super oil rich then there would probably be some agreement to be had but it's not a matter of that it's a matter of principle now actually britain and argentina did have an agreement uh, up until 2016 to cooperate with regard to the Falkland Islands. That that agreement covered things like energy and shipping and fishing, but it didn't include sovereignty. And in 2016, Argentina withdrew from that agreement and demanded that negotiations on the sovereignty of the island be reopened. Of course, in the 1970s, Britain had been negotiating with the Argentinians on sovereignty, and actually the British elites were minded to give the Argentinian sovereignty of the uh, of the land, there was a whole range of options very shortly before the Falklands War erupted in 1982 that would have given Argentina some control. One of the options, for example, was a Hong Kong-style solution where the Argentinians would be handed sovereignty and Britain would get a 99-year lease on the island, just 
for example. Uh, but obviously, the Falklands War, which was started by uh, the Argentinian military dictatorship at the time, uh, put paid to any such negotiations. And now the Argentinians since 2016 have demanded that those um, negotiations be reopened. Militarily, one of the reasons why the Falklands War was the Falklands War was that Britain simply wasn't defending the islands. There was maybe a couple of platoons of Royal Marines in the area. Britain had a very limited naval presence within the area. Um, there was no kind of air force assets there. There was very little in the way of um, uh, electronic uh, warfare systems from radar to uh, listening posts and all the rest of it. So what that allowed the Argentinians to do was to land a conscript force, a conscript expeditionary force of about six or 700 soldiers. That meant that the UK then had to send a huge task force uh, that involved two aircraft carriers, a, a range of escort vessels, plus a large number of merchant marine vessels, which were uh, seconded by the Royal Navy to transport uh, soldiers and weaponry. The length of the of the Atlantic Ocean from the far north to the far south to retake the islands. It was quite a small scale encounter. There were only, you know, if. Uh, maybe 15, 20,000 soldiers from the, uh, less than 20,000, probably 15, maybe a division of soldiers from the Argentinian side and, and, and a little bit less from that from the British side, soldiers and sailors combined. It did lead to quite a large number, you know, a decent number of deaths, uh, about 250 deaths on the British side. And uh, more than that, maybe 700 on the Argentinian side. It was quite a, a serious war. There were some battles fought literally with bayonets drawn. Um, so it was a pretty intense encounter. Britain lost ships, proper Royal Navy ships. We saw in the, uh, in it, you know, we've seen in the Black Sea recently how lethal anti-ship weapons can be. And that was no exception in the Falkland Islands as well. Now that's changed a little bit. Now Britain has made it much more difficult for the Argentinians to mount such an operation again. Uh, now there's something, you know, between uh, British soldiers and Royal Marines and also a very small number of uh, Falklands uh, volunteers. You, you know, you mentioned the number of the, the gun ownership. Uh, I guess that's a kind of a local militia, uh, at least in part, although it is quite a rural environment. So, you know, gun ownership tends to be quite prevalent in such areas, but there's probably pushing towards something like a battalion, maybe six or eight hundred soldiers there. There's uh, three uh, radar early warning systems. Uh, the British have built uh, two uh, runways uh, that can that are of sufficient length to run uh, fast attack jets off them. So there's four. Uh, typhoons in uh, Eurofighter typhoons, which are very highly competent fourth-plus generation fighter jet, uh, one of the most formidable fighter jets in the world at the moment. Um, there are also anti-air systems. There's always a British frigate or destroyer with significant anti-air and missile capacity on board uh, that is on station in the Falklands patrolling. And it's very likely, although not admitted, that there are regular uh, nuclear hunter-killer submarine patrols of the region as well. So prob probably it would be extremely difficult for Argentina to invade. It's about 500, 600 kilometers to the Falkland Islands from Argentinian naval ports. So... You know, we're not talking about a hop across the English Channel here. It is a, a big distance over potentially very rough seas. Um, the weather isn't great in that area of the South Atlantic. So it would be extraordinarily difficult for Argentina to invade, especially given the state of the Argentinian military. It is not a strong military at the moment. It's, in fact, probably more designed uh to keep control of the domestic situation than it is any kind of offensive operations let alone an expeditionary operation of the difficulty and and uh, complexity that they'd be talking about in the Falkland Islands that's not to say though in 10 15 20 years the Argentinian military couldn't be transformed Argentina will not necessarily stay a basket case for ever it, it, that, that, that's not necessarily going to happen 
And the better their military gets, then the more it'll cost Britain to be able to defend it. The key is stopping them landing and taking control of the islands to begin with. Uh, once they're there, it's highly questionable that Britain could uh, put together the sort of task force that we did in the early 1980s. Highly questionable indeed. Like, do we have the troop numbers? Do we have the naval assets? Or would we be able to protect aircraft carriers? So, you know, I think the key point here is that things are just shifting. You know, it's not serious yet, but we're getting signs that we need to start thinking about this, in Britain at least, because in 2011, so, you know, 12, 13 years ago, the organization of... um, the uh, American states, which is a kind of pan America's uh, talking shop of which um, the uh, United States itself is a member, adopted the name Malvinas as the name for the islands. Okay, and Obama himself said when he was president, said that he was that the United States was going to remain neutral on the situation. We should remember back in. 1982, when Argentina invaded, and obviously Britain said it was unacceptable, the Americans tried to push for a diplomatic solution. Uh, You know, they pushed diplomatically very hard. There was debate even to begin with within the US State Department whether to swing behind the UK at all because they were allied with Argentina. So this is a matter of principle. Britain can defend the islands at the moment. There's very little possibility that the Argentinians could successfully invade at present. That does not mean that it's going to stay that way forever. But the important thing is that we see, you know, the the, the 2011 adoption of the Malvinas by the Organization of American States. It's really a pan-American talking shop. It's not a super important organization, but symbolic. We see the Americans under Obama, and I assume under Biden as well, because they have very similar foreign policy outlooks, you know, used the word Malvinas before. He said that they would remain neutral. The Argentinians have withdrawn from the cooperation agreement. Now we have this uh, UN resolution as well. We also have the Chinese, it seems, swinging behind the Argentinians diplomatically. Not hugely, but a little bit. It's not a big issue for China, of course, but a little bit. So, I think it's something that, you know, we're seeing a a little trend here and, you know, from small snowballs to avalanches grow. And I think it's something that people should pay attention to. Yeah, I think a really interesting angle on this is the whole imperialism thing in a sense, right? And you can think of this on two different tracks, as it were. One of them is quite simple. There are holdouts uh, um, of the... British imperial era and even holdouts of other countries' imperial eras. These periods are long since past, and yet there remain these holdouts. And and the Falklands is almost perfect, a perfect example, because territorially, you know, if you just look at a map, you say, well, (laughs) it looks pretty close to Argentina. But if you actually go there, I've never been. But my understanding is if you go there, it really is Britain. And everyone wants to remain British, not just because of the the economic situation in Argentina. As you say, that could change, especially with the emergence of the new BRICS, but also because they're British. I mean, it's just there are British people there, and and they really are British, and they have British customs, and they you know drink British beer and and all that. Um, as you say, those arrangements now are going to be shaken because the the leader or one of the leaders in this emerging multipolar world is a Chinese state that is nominally communist. Now, is it really communist? I don't think so. Not really, but it's nominally communist and it's, it's nominal communist foreign policy is anti-imperialist, but even without the communist, the Marxist ideology behind it, because of China's experiences with especially the British empire, they don't like imperialism. They they have a they have an innate sense, and of course there I'm referring to the Opium Wars, which were pretty horrendous if you read about them. Uh, I mean, Britain did pump China full of drugs. Um, so the um, that so that track is really interesting, as you say. These things that have long since been settled have only really been settled because of the nature of the post 1945 geopolitical framework, which wasn't vastly altered 
in this case by the collapse of the Berlin Wall. The other really interesting question is how America deals with this moving forward. You said that the Americans were a little bit uncertain about which side to go with uh, during the Falklands War. Um, And I think the reason for that is because I think America's, not their stated foreign policy, but since 1945, a theme of their foreign policy has been, I'd say, soft anti-imperialist. Um, they didn't like the empires that preceded American global hegemony. And they see, until recently, they see American global hegemony outside of imperial terms. And so they consider what, what we have after 1945 and after the collapse of the Berlin Wall as something fundamentally different from the old systems of empire. And it may be, but it, there are more similarities than I think they'd care to admit. They could take that stance in 1982. Can they take that stance today? It's a really interesting question because obviously China are looking at the Falklands and they're stirring that pot for different reasons. But one of those reasons is to bolster the case that Taiwan, American influence over Taiwan is fundamentally imperialistic in some way. So the the Americans will want to be cautious here because whereas back 40 years ago, they may have been able to take the, the, you know, the moral high ground and say, well, you know, that's an old um, imperial structure. We don't have that sort of thing. We don't support that sort of thing. We like national self-determination. Yeah, well, the Chinese view the Taiwan problem through the lens of imperialism. So if if a kind of a discussion starts around what the British are doing in the Falkland Islands, uh, the Chinese can very easily pivot that to why are the Americans having an influence on an island off the coast of our mainland? Yeah, I think you've struck on the, the salient point here, which is, uh, look, I'm British, so I'm biased. I'm not going to... <laughs> talk about uh, the various claims of of Britain and Argentina to the island. I think, though, that if listeners want to have a look into this, they will realise that Argentina's historical claim to the island is very poor. The the, the claim seems to be based on the fact that it's very close to the Argentinian mainland, but it's actually a a fairly poor claim in historical and uh, legal terms. But, of course, I'm British, I am biased, so I'll let readers do their own reading on that. The other point is, does the UN and and, and, and do we believe in the right of uh, self-determination for people? If the answer to that is yes, well, it's clear that the, the Falklanders want to remain part of Britain. As you said, they are British in their language, in their customs, in their culture, in their loyalties. So... Uh, I mean, the idea that they would be ruled from Argentina seems very strange indeed. It it would be like, you know, uh, insisting that some kind of apple pie and white picket fence suburb of Texas moved back into Mexican rule. It it just seems very strange, even more so. So that, that aside, the most important point is the one that you struck upon. We're entering an era where great power competition is going to be heightened and continue heightening for a long time. And this great power competition is going to be very fierce indeed. Now let's look at South America. South America is traditionally America's backyard. It has fairly ruthlessly kept control of South America. It certainly did during the Cold War. And it's used the Monroe Doctrine to justify that. It arranged quite a few coups and regime changes and all the rest of it in South America. And uh, in order to exclude the Soviet Union from any influence within the region. Now, fast forward to the present day, China is now the biggest trade partner of pretty much every Latin American country. I think there are only one or two exceptions. But apart from that, China is the biggest trade partner and the biggest trade partner by quite a long way. It's also making diplomatic progress in America. We have covered this extensively on multipolarity. We've talked about its uh, diplomatic uh, progress with Brazil, especially since uh, Lula came to power. But it's also, as we've covered, made diplomatic process in Argentina. For instance, it's opened up currency swaps to Argentina, uh, which will help 
covers some of Argentina's trade deficit with China. It has set up a clearinghouse for for currency swaps and uh, bilateral uh, trade in yuan. Okay, so it, it it's making a lot of progress now. As you say, China, it will feel very natural to China to swing behind the anti-colonialist rhetoric of the uh, South American nations in general, but especially Argentina when it comes to Britain. You know, Britain's history in uh, China over the years has been, let's be honest, fairly shameful. The Chinese have not forgotten that. And of course, it'll feel very easy for the Chinese to swing behind uh, nationalist Argentinian claims to the Falkland Islands. However, there's also a realpolitik reason for that, because using Chinese power, which is actually very strong diplomatically these days, will help the Argentinians. That will help gain influence with Argentina. Now, what do the Americans do? They are increasingly getting concerned with Chinese influence in South America, and they're increasingly mobilizing their resources, soft power, hard power, uh, diplomatic, all economic power behind trying to dislodge China or at least balance it within the region. And it's very easy to think of the Americans not being able to swing behind Britain for fear of losing a key ally in the region or, or, or fear of shifting a country into China's camp. So Britain has to be very careful of this. Since the Falklands War, Britain addressed many of the military problems that led to the Falklands being invaded in the first place. But now they're going to have to be very careful about the diplomatic issues and the realpolitik, great power competition issues surrounding the island. They're going to have to refocus on that. And I think it's also a lesson for the rest of the world. As this great power competition heats up, as we see uh, increasing battles around the world for in various regions for influence, individual countries will be able to use that great power competition to further their own economic, uh, diplomatic, and territorial aims. And I think this is not going to be limited to the Falklands. You might see disputes and conflicts like this reignite all over the world as the US, as China, and, and to a lesser extent, perhaps even Russia, start to try to swing their weight behind various com countries to curry favor in various regions in the world. So it's an issue for the Falklands, but people should watch for this sort of thing in the rest of the world as well. Monetarism's meltdown. Yeah, so the Bank of England hiked rates quite aggressively this last week. It raised them by 0.5%. And the debate that's taken place around it, I think, is interesting from a broader perspective because it may not play out elsewhere, but it could. I think at this stage, the Bank of England is denying that they're trying to produce a recession in Britain to stamp out the inflation. But even their statements feel a little bit, the lady doth protest too much. It looks really like they're trying to create a, a recession in Britain. They've decided that wage increases and core inflation are just too sticky and that the only thing that's going to wipe this out that's going to that's going to dampen this is layoffs um and uh and a loose uh, labor market and I, I personally think they're correct about that they've made that decision they won't admit to it they'll never admit that they're trying to create a recession but it looks increasingly obvious the markets have now cottoned on to this and all the policy people and everybody the discussion has turned in this direction now i find this very surprising because it, when inflation takes off, if the central bank starts tightening, you always get a recession. It always happens. I, I don't know of a, of a recent example that it hasn't happened. It's really the only way that central banks have to control inflation is to loosen, is to open the slack in the labor market, which ultimately means unemployment, and unemployment doesn't happen without a recession. What's interesting is that after the rate hike, there's been a bit of a discussion about whether the bank is being too aggressive. The rationale behind this is basically, it's mainly monetarists. Monetarists are looking at uh, money supply metrics, notably the M3 money supply, and they're saying the M3 is already contracting. And they say that that means the recession is already baked in. 
Now, I don't think that's the case. Money supply metrics are good leading indicators of recession, but they're not ironclad. No leading indicator is ironclad, especially with all the banking turmoil and so on, because the banking turmoil itself can lead people to take deposits out which is part of the money supply. So, but the the broader point is that there's this kind of way of conceptualizing the economy that I think is becoming, in my opinion, increasingly outdated, which is that the central bank has effectively a thermometer for the economy, and it can just turn that turn that thermometer, and it manipulates the interest rates, and through the interest rates, the money supply, and that literally sets the level of economic activity. You can think of it in that way. That's not how this works at all. When a central bank starts raising rates and gets to the point where the rates cause problems in the financial system, like we're starting to see, the whole thing just collapses. All the weaknesses in the economy are shaken out. The the recession isn't determined by the amount to which the Bank of England turned the knob. The recession is determined by the fragilities built into the economy. And we don't really know what those are until after the fact, until we've seen them occur. It's like Warren Buffett's old phrase, um, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. That's effectively what happens. So I think it's kind of interesting. I, I think we might see as more and more people accept that we are inevitably going to get a recession out of central bank interest rate hikes, which is almost guaranteed in every case. Um, I wonder, will people start turning to this, turning back to this thermometer idea of the economy and and you know and then apportioning blame and saying you know if the if the recession turns out to be quite deep oh well that was all down to the fact that they hiked past five six percent um if they hadn't and they got that sweet spot at 4.75 then we wouldn't have gotten this level of depth of a recession i think it's a really it's strange that people still think of the economy in such a simplistic manner I think it's reasonable to say, and and, and perhaps you would agree as well, Philip, that this inflation uh, situation started as a supply shock. Perhaps they gunned monetary policy. I say perhaps. (laughs) I don't think there's much perhaps about it. Uh, During the pandemic and after the pandemic in the recovery, they kind of gunned quantitative easing and and, and, and near zero interest rates for far too long. But really, uh, I think a great deal of, uh, of the of the current inflation started at least as a supply issue, uh, both in terms of um, the dislocation of supply chains that was caused by the uh, pandemic and then the uh, Ukraine crisis. And of course, then the sanctions that Britain and other European countries imposed on Russia in response to that crisis. That's where the inflation came from. And, uh, you know, perhaps if people still think it's just that, they might think that, well, uh, you know, there's inflation everywhere in the world because of these supply issues. So, you know, how on earth can the Bank of England uh, affect the, you know, the international price of oil and gas because of its, you know, through its monetary policy? The answer is, of course, it cannot. So what's the point? You just let the whole thing go through the pipe and then things normalize. But the point is, it's not that anymore. Core inflation, which strips out highly volatile components of inflation, things like oil and gas prices or utilities bills, uh, that's also now high and very sticky uh, high. And I I think I'm right in saying that it's also fair to say that interest rates are still negative. Inflation is still quite a a few basis points or a few percentage points above the interest rates. So I suspect that the Bank of England is, is going to just keep going on this until it sees the whites of a recession's eyes, basically, until it can see that an infl- a recession has come and it's truly wringing inflation out of the economy in that way. But given the persistence of core inflation, i.e. with most of the supply shock effects stripped away, and the fact that it appears that we're getting some kind of wage push to inflation, you know, I think the Bank of England is just going to keep hammering rates up and up and up. The issue with uh, negative rates is a funny one, and it really gives lie to this mechanical thermostat version of central banking. You're absolutely right. Interest rates are still negative in the UK. So these guys that are saying you can just get, you know, the kind of Goldilocks uh, or and the three bears, you know, and and you can get a just right amount of uh, interest rate rise. They are arguing that that the just right amount 
is negative interest rates to squeeze inflation yeah, like out negative two or three percent whatever it is. is it negative three percent now or? it must be close to that so i mean negative interest rates on their little mechanistic model which i don't favor it's called the islm for anyone interested but um on their little mechanical model Negative interest rates should be expansionary always because you're effectively paying people, uh, paying people, uh, paying people to borrow money uh, in real terms. So it, the whole thing's bizarre. I think they, I think the 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 mechanical ISLM model now of the economy has got so um, broken that the proponents of it or proponents of similar models like um, monetarist models, which are very similar in a lot of ways. People just don't even know what they're saying anymore. They're 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 looking at one metric and it's showing something, and then they're forgetting that we actually have negative real interest rates, which all models would tell you are expansionary. All of it needs to go in the bin, in my in my opinion. It's all useless, and and, and this cycle is is showing it in a way the previous cycles haven't. The economy just doesn't, you know, there are no thermostats. It's a messy business. And um, and the control that we have is less a, less a scalpel and more a sledgehammer. Um, could we improve on that? Maybe. I, maybe we should start talking about that and, and dusting off the debates around central bank policies and so on. I'd be in favor of that. But at the very least, we should... Um, we should recognize the reality. One thing to add, um, I did see an article in the Financial Times saying that um, that because the interest rate hike was quite large, the expectation was that sterling would firm up, that it would uh, trade higher. And uh, apparently that didn't happen. There was a little bit of price action in sterling, and then it fell again. And so I think this says that um, sterling is, and we've highlighted it many times on the podcast, sterling is in a pretty precarious position at the moment. Um, I don't think the the central bank is purely reacting to sterling weakness in its um, raising of interest rates, but I bet you it's number two on the list after getting inflation down. And I'd imagine if the Bank of England economists know what they're talking about, which I think they do, they probably are wary of the fact that um, an inflation differential, positive inflation differential that like we're seeing in Britain right now relative to the rest of the world can be quite bad for a currency. Now, generally speaking, that doesn't impact Britain, but you know, it might next time. Overall, I think, I think it should just be stressed that the criticisms of the central bank in Britain at the moment I don't think are very serious. They're based on very, I would say, old-fashioned, out-of-touch economic ideas that have been really disproved in the last 20 years with rate height cycles just shaking out the financial system every single time. Euro friend-zoned. The Bundesbank, some trouble has been highlighted with their balance sheet by the uh, audit office, which is called the, I'll try and pronounce it, Bundesrechnungshof. And they've basically said that there could be some serious problems with the capital base of the bank. Um, and that basically this has been due to the fact that the bank, the Bundesbank, was pushed uh, into buying an awful lot of sovereign debt in 2015. It objected to this. Re- recall this was the bailouts effectively of the European periphery countries. They, they were pushing for it. The doves um, were pushing for uh, central bank backstopping of these debts. And the Germans were always really, really against it. But they were pushed into it because, you know, basically the argument shook out, either we do this or the Eurozone's toast. And, uh, and so they did it. But the Bundesbank remained opposed to it. And I think most Germans remained opposed to it. Um, so they ended up with a lot of this... Um, uh, debt on their balance sheet. The Bundesbank, because it's one of the largest economies, ended up buying, I think, probably the largest share. So, um, so the the program, the ECB's public sector purchase program, ended up hoovering up about two point seven trillion worth of sovereign bonds. Uh, the Bundesbank bought six hundred and sixty six billion euro of German government debt under that scheme. Um, an ominous number. I wonder, did they actually set that target to make a point? But it's a very, very large component of the overall program. So how much risk is the Bundesbank at? Um, uh, the report seems to suggest that this is a little bit of accounting trickery here. Um, the uh, the report says that it would probably, quote unquote, exceed the remaining uh, 19.2 billion euro of provisions and 2.5 billion euro of the capital. That is, the losses would exceed that. 
But the Bundesbank has $170 billion uh, euros of gold and foreign exchange reserves that it could technically you know, use, up, use to shore up its balance sheet. I don't think it would necessarily need to liquidate them. I guess it could just make an accounting argument. So I, I, don't, I don't know which report is true. I suspect that that more nuanced report is closer to the truth. So what is the point here? What's the big overall point? Well, the overall point is the Bundesbank are saying, I told you so. The Bundesbank were highly critical of these quantitative easing programs, which was effectively what was used in the Eurozone case to backstop these public finances. And the the Germans were always concerned about two things. First of all, backing up the profligate governments would encourage them to spend more. But the second thing, the thing that was actually less talked about, was I think they always feared mission creep with the QE programs, that yes, this time, maybe you could make the case it was necessary to shore up the single currency by bailing out these uh, 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 sovereign sovereign bonds markets. But once you do that, your monetary policy is going to become increasingly politicized because the, the bailout really did violate the letter and the spirit of law of EU law, which was mainly crafted, I think, by German economists. I don't know the exact history, but that's my sense. Um, and so they kind of said, well, once you break the rules once, you'll just keep breaking them. And it's kind of what we saw. We won't discuss whether the bailouts uh, of the sovereign uh, debt markets was the correct or incorrect thing to do. I mean, I personally think it was probably the correct thing to do. But the continued quantitative easing programs, which now have got so extreme that last year, the ECB said that they were going to purchase green debt, like for green energy companies. What is this? That's not monetary policy. That's not the job of the ECB. The whole thing's become completely corrupted. So much so that the Germans have actually had a... um, a uh, high court case, a constitutional court case in 2020, which ruled that um, that the EU's top judges failed to properly scrutinize this um, this uh, this bond purchase program. The legal reasoning of the Germans here is correct. A lot of rules were broken, and we did go down the slippery slope of monetary policy. Now those monetary policies, I'm not saying the bailouts of the sovereign countries. I'm saying the monetary policies that followed the QE programs eventually reaching its nadir in some sort of bizarre hybrid green policy that they've adopted now, it's gotten completely out of hand and now they're melting down. The, these purchase programs have forced all this debt onto the onto the balance sheets of these ba- of the central banks, but also onto the onto the balance sheets of the banks, like we've seen in America with the banking failures. And when the interest rates go up, the value of these things gets wiped out and the banking system uh, could potentially fall apart. And as we've pointed out on the podcast before, the central bank's primary job is to try and backstop and make sure that the banking system is functional. So they they have actually thrown their primary function under the boss in order to pursue this increasingly activist function. First of all, driving down yields, and now in the EU's case, going so far as engaging in some sort of green policy through their monetary policy. So the Germans, I think, are doing a bit of a victory lap here. This really indicates some of the inherent contradictions within the European monetary and financial, or or the EU, or the Eurozones, I should say, monetary and financial and, and banking systems. Of course, the German central bank, the Bundesbank, has, has famously uh, frugal, parsimonious, and uh, you know hawkish, I guess, when it came to monetary policy. And, and it has been uh, from its post-war beginnings. It was a crucial. Uh, it was a f- uh, really a cornerstone of the kind of the ordo liberalist uh, ideals of, uh, of post-war Germany, and to the extent where. One of the reasons Britain joined the European exchange rate mechanism in the uh, in the late eighties was to try to in, uh, impose a bit of um, uh, Bundesbank, uh, you know, hard money discipline into Britain itself, which you know shows you what a reputation the Bundesbank built. The issue here really is, though, that the eurozone came perilously close to breakup. I would say. You know, a couple of times in the last twenty years, and it, it was Mario Draghi's "We'll do whatever it takes" that really calmed markets and probably saved the sovereign debt crisis. You know, in Italy and Spain, which almost certainly would have started bouncing all around Europe, picking off the weaker states as it went. 
And that's the problem, though. When a bank like the Bank of England or the or the Federal Reserve Bank in in the U.S. can, you know, it doesn't really care about that barrier between monetary and fiscal policy because you know it's 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 there to keep the the financial sector of the state running. Essentially, it's there to backstop it. But in Europe, that is an issue because. If the central bank starts encroaching on fiscal policy or if it starts doing fiscal policy de facto, which, as you say, the European Central Bank probably has started doing with its various quantitative easing schemes and bond purchase schemes, then that means that fiscal policy has suddenly transferred from sovereign states and the parliaments of those sovereign states to the unelected technocrats of the European Central Bank within a European superstate, which has no constitutional or legal basis for undertaking those things. And that's the that's the contradiction that is we're undergoing here. You've got Mario Draghi, who desperately had to try to tell the market something to save the whole thing from spinning out of control in the mid-2010, the early and mid-2010s. And this kind of barrier where, well, if the ECB is going to start doing this, then it's, that means the EU or, or the Eurozone is doing fiscal policy, which is a, a big thing to capture. I mean, if you don't even have control of your fiscal policy as a national parliament, what do you have control of? And of course, buying Italian bonds, buying Spanish bonds, doing QE is essentially buying the sovereign bonds of that country. You're essentially helping them deal with their own financial problems by helping them artificially keeping their rates low. It's kind of like fiscal policy, right? It's kind of covering their debt, essentially, or it's making their debt sustainable. So I think you are seeing this kind of inherent contradiction here. And the problem is that the Germans really have been fighting against this. It's not widely reported in the British press, but it's even gone as far as the Supreme Court of Germany. And the Germans keep their uh, you know, take their basic law, as they call it, which is essentially their constitutional law, they take their basic law very seriously. And the the judges at the Supreme Court at Karlsruhe essentially, you know, gave the European Central Bank and the European Commission in Brussels, uh, you, you know, quite a slap on the wrists the last time this went to the Supreme Court. Of course, the European Court of Justice, the 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 the, the you know, the Supreme Court of the European Union essentially kind of uh, dismissed the, you know, the German court's ruling. But the, the the point I'm trying to make here is that this is an issue. And if we start getting situations where now the German taxpayer, which is already stressed because of high energy prices, is already stressed because of the effect that those energy prices are having on Germany's industrial economy, which like no other state in Europe is reliant on industry and manufacturing. So if in this environment the uh, you know the German central bank has to go to the German taxpayer and ask for money to recapitalize because of things that it did for you know the European ideal, so to speak, then that could be a problem. Well, I think the doves are going to live to regret their later policies. Through the sovereign debt crisis, they established themselves as the adults in the room, willing to do what was necessary to save the single currency. And then they got ahead of themselves and they started doing increasingly crazy monetary policy that had, as you say, no legal backing, blurred into fiscal policy, is questionable, even if you're a dovish monetary policy person is like green purchases it's too far like what's next whatever you know the fashion of the week is we'll just purchase that you know well it'll be ukraine next for instance ukraine rebuilding they they, they, they will use that as an opportunity to take more power for example yeah yeah that that's a that's a distinct possibility it's just it goes too far and and the eu relies on its legal structures to survive and even then it, it can be quite messy so i think what's going to happen here is the bundesbank is seeing a very good opportunity to take back over the debate and i think that after this after the smoke is cleared on inflation and as things settle down a bit to the extent that it does clear on inflation because we'll still have energy price problems in the eu which might keep price pressures at least relatively high in a recession i think the bundesbank guys the hawks are about to get back in the saddle the doves have discredited themselves by going too far 
this often happens. They've, they've gone too far. And so now the hawks are going to ride back in. They're going to shove it in everyone's face. They're going to say, we were right about all those experimental monetary policies. Look how much damage they did to the financial system when you had to eventually hike rates, which we always we always said that there'd eventually be inflation. We were right. You were wrong. And the doves are going to get cowed at a certain point. And the Bundesbank will probably, if not, take back over the ECB widely rule over what's taught normal to talk about in financial markets and so on. So I think um, I think that's going to be, and that in turn will be the next development in the ongoing problems that, that Europe has due to its, um, its, its half thought through fiscal and monetary structure, that these problems will just keep repeating themselves. And so if we ever need, let's say the Hawks get back in and we ever need another mass bailout program for the sovereign bondholders, Will we be having that debate again in 2035 or something? It is absolutely possible. Um, the hawks, the, the doves, seem they thought they thought that okay, this is how it is now. We've kind of you know we've not done it perfectly legally, but we've done it. Now we're in charge. Mm, for how long? Look, I mean, from the moment the EU was founded, uh, Jean Monnet always wanted EU power over sovereign states to be expanded. Uh, through crises, basically. The, and I guess the ECB managed to do that through the sovereign debt crisis uh, and then one or two of the smaller crises that required it to get much more involved in the sovereign debt of nations. It was also quite heavily involved in the Greek bailout. It was all, also quite heavily involved in the downfall of Silvio Berlusconi. What's interesting is they will fight tooth and claw to keep those new powers, but you say that the Germans will use this as a "told you so" moment to retake control of the Bund- uh, of the ECB, the European Central Bank, to take it in hand. You did mention the potential for, you know, a, de- a big debate over sovereign debt crises in the future if if a bailout was ever needed. What what would I mean, just briefly, what do you think would be the effects of the German hawks or the Bundesbank hawks, you know, taking back the reins of the ECB? Because, as you say, the Eurozone is a suboptimal currency area. It seems to be, you know, deflationary by design. It seems to be um, something that basically creates and accentuates crises once they start. So, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that you know countries, especially on the periphery of the zone, might struggle uh, with sovereign debt in the future and, and need bailouts. Now, if the hawks are involved, what I mean, what gonna if the hawks are in charge, what could what could that mean for the future of the European Union and also the eurozone? We don't know, but the debate is still alive. That's the key point. The the Hawks and the and the Germans, frankly, never went away. They never changed their mind. It's been nearly ten years now, and they continue complaining about this. Um, do I agree with them on some things? I do. On other things, I don't. But the point is that it's a reasonable debate, and so it hasn't gone away. So it, we don't know how it's going to play out in the future. But the people who thought that Mario Draghi reigned in. Um, you know, uh, an, a, a monetary empire that will last a thousand years. No, he didn't. He didn't at all. And it was only, and it turned out, irony of ironies, to only be as strong as its stupidest policy. We are fresh from a huge victory.